Hi everybody, welcome to the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra, thank you for listening. Uh, I am really grateful that y'all are coming back week after week. I have actually had my biggest uh, non-marathon month uh, this past month. Uh, November was, I, I, I scored 6,500, I want 67, I think it was 6,700 downloads like throughout the course of the month, which is 150% higher than what it is. It, it was in the in a non-marathon month before October. Now, is that all just hangover from October? Yeah, probably. But we'll find out in December and see how that goes. So, as of right now, I'm up over 100 views, up over 100 downloads, which makes for, I think, two and a half weeks straight that I've had over 100, uh, that I haven't dropped below 100 downloads in a day, which is... The first time that's ever happened. And now that I've actually said that out loud, I'm jinxing myself. And tomorrow it's going to be like 30. That's going to be depressing. Uh, just a quick thing to address up at the top of the show. I actually got an email um, from a from a listener named Dan who uh, says, On this week's episode, The Inmost Light Part 1, you commented at the beginning that you were just going to get right into it, but I like understanding a bit of context for the story. When was it published? What publication? How does it fit in the author's larger body of work? For this one in particular, there's an opportunity to talk briefly about the Dyson character as Mockin's go-to occult detective. Yeah, that's a thing that I have thought about doing, but I am a very lazy person, and I don't research very well, and it just seems like a lot of work. So I tend to just get it. I don't like, and also I don't like, like I'm doing now, surrounding the story with a bunch of fluff and, uh, you know, outside stuff that nobody, you know, listens to. So you're just all skipping through this looking for the story right now. Anyway, um, I, I, and uh, I just kind of like just getting into the story, getting out of the story, maybe doing a blooper reel if there's anything worth blooping. Uh, and, um, and really that's that's just about it. I continually toy with the idea of doing a companion YouTube page uh, where I have a you know a video where I actually talk about that sort of stuff. But in order to do that, it would require moving the recording studio into a room that needs to be cleaned up and restructured and all and it's just a lot of work that needs to be done if I'm gonna do that. And should I do it? Yes, I absolutely should. I absolutely should. Am I gonna do it? I wouldn't bet on it. Don't put any money on that because that's not a smart bet. He also says, also, can you please read R.H. Barlow's The Night Ocean? That story is really edited for content. That story is really good. And there are no good readings, really. And um, my take on that is this. The Night Ocean, I read it once 10 years or so ago, maybe. Maybe seven or eight years or so ago. And I haven't read it since because I didn't like it. Uh, to me, like nothing happened. It wasn't really weird or scary or creepy or anything like that. It was just sort of boring. Um, and to be fair, that might've been because of my mindset at the time. Uh, and maybe now if I went back and read it and, uh, and, uh, you know, didn't sit down with any preconceptions of what I thought it was going to be, then yeah, I might like it a little more and I might cover it. Um, in my memory, it is pretty short, so it could probably be a one-shot that I could actually do and just get it all done in a week, and that would be great. Uh, but um, I will keep it in the hopper. I will keep it under consideration uh, because, uh, I mean, because you requested it, and I, I want to make sure that everybody's happy. So 
Uh, all right, I think that's going to wrap it up for the introduction here. Um, I don't really have much else to say. I mean, if you want a little bit of history, Dyson is Mockin's go-to occult detective. He appears in a lot of um, Mockin's work. I think he was in. I think he was. He had a bit part in The Great God Pan, which I covered in four different episodes about a year and a half ago, maybe. Um, but uh, it's somewhere back in the archives, and you can find it, and it'll be great. But Dyson's in that. Dyson uh, and his his friend Phillips also appear all throughout the Three Imposters, which is a series of stories that uh, is currently on the short list for next year's October project. I haven't decided yet. There's three other items on that list, um, and it will probably grow as I continue to think of things. So anyway, that's a little bit of the behind the that's a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for writing in, and always feel free to write in and share your your thoughts and your opinions. And if you have anything you want to hear read, I am more than happy to um, make a list and keep it under consideration because I often just sit here and from week to week go, what am I going to record this week? I have no idea. So, and then I like the day before, or sometimes even the day of I'll like sit down and be like, okay, I need to figure this out right now. Cause I need to record. So anyway, Thank you. Uh, if you have any suggestions, feel free to write the Weird Tales Podcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Weird Tales Pod. Feel free to leave me a rating and a review on iTunes, and let's get on with the story. Three. Salisbury was a man of habit. When he got home, drenched to the skin, his clothes hanging lank about him, and a ghastly dew besmearing his hat, his only thought was of his health, of which he took studious care. So, after changing his clothes and encasing himself in a warm dressing gown, he proceeded to prepare a sudorific in the shape of a hot gin and water, warming the latter over one of those spirit lamps which mitigate the austerities of the modern hermit's life. By the time this preparation had been exhibited, and Salisbury's disturbed feelings had been soothed by a pipe of tobacco, he was able to get into bed in a happy state of vacancy without a thought of his adventure in the dark archway, or of the weird fancies with which Dyson had seasoned his dinner. It was the same at breakfast the next morning, for Salisbury made a point of not thinking of anything until that meal was over, but when the cup and saucer were cleared away and the morning pipe was lit, he remembered the little ball of paper and began fumbling in the pockets of his wet coat. He did not remember into which pocket he had put it, and as he dived now into one and now into another, he experienced a strange feeling of apprehension lest it should not be there at all, though he could not for the life of him have explained the importance he attached to what was, in all probability, mere rubbish." But he sighed with relief when his fingers touched the crumpled surface in an inside pocket, and he drew it out gently and laid it on the little desk by his easy chair with as much care as if it had been some rare jewel. Salisbury sat smoking and staring at his find for a few minutes, an odd temptation to throw the thing in the fire and have done with it, struggling with as odd a speculation as to its possible contents, and as to the reason why the infuriated woman should have flung a bit of paper from her with such vehemence. As might be expected... It was the latter feeling that conquered in the end, and yet it was with something like repugnance that he at last took the paper and unrolled it, and laid it out before him. It was a piece of common dirty paper, to all appearance torn out of a cheap exercise book, and in the middle were a few lines written in a queer, cramped hand. Salisbury bent his head and stared eagerly at it for a moment, drawing a long breath, and then fell back in his chair, gazing blankly before him, till at last, with a sudden revulsion, he burst into a peal of laughter so long and loud and uproarious that the landlady's baby on the floor below awoke from sleep and echoed his mirth with hideous yells. But he laughed again and again, and took the paper up to read a second time what seemed such meaningless nonsense. 
Q has had to go and see his friends in Paris, it began. Traverse handle S, once around the grass, and twice around the lass, and thrice around the maple tree. Salisbury took up the paper and crumpled it as the angry woman had done and aimed it at the fire. He did not throw it there, however, but tossed it carelessly into the well of the desk and laughed again. The sheer folly of the thing offended him, and he was ashamed of his own eager speculation as one who pours over the high-sounding announcements in the agony column of the daily paper and finds nothing but advertisement and triviality. He walked to the window and stared out at the languid morning life of his quarter, the maids in slatternly print dresses washing doorsteps, the fishermonger and the butcher on their rounds, and the tradesmen standing at the doors of their small shops, drooping for lack of trade and excitement. In the distance, a blue haze gave some grandeur to the prospect, but the view as a whole was depressing and would only have interested a student of the life of London, who finds something rare and choice in its very aspect. Salisbury turned away in disgust and settled himself in the easy chair, upholstered in a bright shade of green and decked with yellow gimp, which was the pride and attraction of the apartments. Here he composed himself to his morning's occupation, the perusal of a novel that dealt with sport and love in a manner that suggested the collaboration of a stud groom and a ladies' college. In an ordinary way, however, Salisbury would have been carried on by the interest of the story up to lunchtime, but this morning he fidgeted in and out of his chair, took the book up and laid it down again, and swore at last to himself and at himself in mere irritation. In point of fact, the jingle of the paper found in the archway had got into his head, and do what he would, he could not help muttering over and over, once around the grass, and twice around the lass, and thrice around the maple tree. It became a positive pain, like the foolish burden of a music-hall song everlastingly quoted and sung at all hours of the day and night, and treasured by the street boys as an unfailing resource for six months together. He went out into the streets and tried to forget his enemy in the jostling of the crowds and the roar and clatter of the traffic, but presently he would find himself stealing quietly aside and pacing some deserted byway, vainly puzzling his brains and trying to fix some meaning to phrases that were meaningless. It was a positive relief when Thursday came, and he remembered that he had made an appointment to go and see Dyson. The flimsy reveries of the self-styled man of letters appeared entertaining when compared with this ceaseless iteration, this maze of thought from which there seemed no possibility of escape. Dyson's abode was in one of the quietest of the quiet streets that led down from the Strand to the river, and when Salisbury passed from the narrow stairway into his friend's room, he saw that the uncle had been beneficent indeed. The floor glowed and flamed with all the colors of the east. It was, as Dyson pompously remarked, a sunset and a dream. And the lamplight, the twilight of London streets, was shut out with strangely worked curtains, glittering here and there with threads of gold. In the shelves of an oak armoire stood jars and plates of old French china, and the black and white of etchings not to be found in the Haymarket or in Bond Street stood out against the splendor of a Japanese paper. Salisbury sat down on the settle by the hearth and sniffed the mingled fumes of incense and tobacco, wondering and dumb before all this splendor after the green rep and the oleographs, the gilt-framed mirror and the lusters of his own apartment. "'I'm glad you have come,' said Dyson. "'Comfortable little room, isn't it? But you don't look very well, Salisbury. Nothing disagreed with you, has it?' "'No, but I have been a good deal bothered for the last few days. The fact is, I had an old kind of... of... Adventure, I suppose I may call it, that night I saw you, and it has worried me a good deal, and the provoking part of it is that it's the merest nonsense. But, however, I will tell you all about it by and by. You are going to let me have the rest of that odd story you began at the restaurant. Yes, but I am afraid, Salisbury, you are incorrigible. You are a slave to what you call matter of fact. You know perfectly well that in your heart you think the oddness in that case is of my making, 
and that it is all really as plain as the police reports. However, as I have begun, I will go on. But first we will have something to drink, and you may as well light your pipe. Dyson went up to the old oak cupboard and drew from its depths a rotund bottle and two little glasses quaintly gilded. It's Benedictine, he said. You'll have some, won't you? Salisbury assented, and the two men sat sipping and smoking reflectively for some minutes before Dyson began. Let me see, he said at last. We were at the inquest, weren't we? No, we had done with that. Ah, I remember. I was telling you that on the whole I had been successful in my inquiries, investigation, or whatever you like to call it, into the matter. Wasn't that where I left off? Yes, that was it. To be precise, I think, though, was the last word you said on the matter. Exactly. I have been thinking it all over since the other night, and I have come to the conclusion that that though is a very big though indeed. Not to put too fine a point on it, I have had to confess that what I found, or thought I found out, amounts in reality to nothing. I am as far away from the heart of the case as ever. However, I may as well tell you what I do know. You may remember my saying that I was impressed a good deal by some remarks of one of the doctors who gave it evidence at the inquest. Well, I determined that my first step must be to try if I could get something more definite and intelligible out of that doctor. Somehow or other, I managed to get an introduction to the man, and he gave me an appointment to come and see him. He turned out to be a pleasant, genial fellow, rather young and not in the least like the typical medical man, and he began the conference by offering me whiskey and cigars. I didn't think it worthwhile to beat about the bush, so I began by saying that part of his evidence at the Halsden inquest struck me as very peculiar, and I gave him the printed report with the sentences in question underlined. He just glanced at the slip and gave me a queer look. "'Struck you as peculiar, did it?' said he. "'Well, you must remember that the Halsden case was very peculiar. In fact, I think I may safely say that in some features it was... unique. Quite unique.' "'Quite so,' I replied. "'And that's exactly why it interests me, and why I want to know more about it. And I thought that if anybody could give me any information it would be you. What is your opinion of the matter?' "'It was a pretty downright sort of question, and my doctor looked rather taken aback.' "'Well,' he said, "'as I fancy your motive in inquiring into the question must be mere curiosity, "'I think I may tell you my opinion with tolerable freedom. "'So, Mr... Mr. Dyson, if you want to know my theory, it is this. "'I believe that Dr. Black killed his wife.' "'But the verdict,' I answered, "'the verdict was given from your own evidence.' "'Quite so. "'The verdict was given in accordance with the evidence of my colleague and myself, "'and under the circumstances I think the jury acted very sensibly. "'In fact, I don't see what else they could have done.' "'But I stick to my opinion, mind you, and I say this also. "'I don't wonder at Black's doing what I firmly believe he did. "'I think he was justified.' "'Justified? How could that be?' I asked. "'I was astonished, as you may imagine, at the answer I had got. "'The doctor wheeled round his chair and looked steadily at me for a moment before he answered. "'I suppose you are not a man of science yourself?' "'No, then it would be of no use my going into detail. "'I have always been firmly opposed to any partnership between physiology and psychology. "'I believe that both are bound to suffer.' No one recognizes more decidedly than I do the impassable gulf, the fathomless abyss that separates the world of consciousness from the sphere of matter. We know that every change of consciousness is accompanied by a rearrangement of the molecules in the grey matter, and that is all. What the link between them is, or why they occur together, we do not know, and most authorities believe that we never can know. Yet I will tell you that, as I did my work, the knife in my hand, I felt convinced, in spite of all theories, that what lay before me was not the brain of a dead woman." not the brain of a human being at all. Of course, I saw the face, but it was quite placid, devoid of all expression. It must have been a beautiful face, no doubt, but I can honestly say that I would not have looked in that face when there was life behind it for a thousand guineas, no, nor for twice that sum. My dear sir, I said, you surprise me extremely. 
You say that it was not the brain of a human being. What was it, then? The brain of a devil. He spoke quite coolly and never moved a muscle. The brain of a devil, he repeated, and I have no doubt that Black found some way of putting an end to it. I don't blame him if he did. Whatever Mrs. Black was, she was not fit to stay in this world. Will you have anything more? No? Good night. Good night. It was a queer sort of opinion to get from a man of science, wasn't it? When he was saying that he would not have looked on that face when alive for a thousand guineas, or two thousand guineas, I was thinking of the face I had seen, but I said nothing. I went again to Halsden, and passed from one shop to another, making small purchases and trying to find out whether there was anything about the blacks which was not already common property, but there was very little to hear. One of the tradesmen to whom I spoke said he had known the dead woman well. She used to buy of him such quantities of grocery as were required for their small household, for they never kept a servant, but had a charwoman in occasionally, and she had not seen Mrs. Black for months before she died. According to this man, Mrs. Black was a nice lady, always kind and considerate, and so fond of her husband and he of her as everyone thought. And yet, to put the doctor's opinion on one side, I knew what I had seen. And then, after thinking it all over and putting one thing with another, it seemed to me that the only person likely to give me much assistance would be Black himself, and I made up my mind to find him. Of course, he wasn't to be found in Halsden. He had left, I was told, directly after the funeral. Everything in the house had been sold, and one fine day Black got into the train with a small portmanteau and went, nobody knew where. It was a chance if he were ever heard of again, and it was by a mere chance that I came across him at last. I was walking one day along Gray's Inn Road, not bound for anywhere in particular, but looking about me as usual and holding on to my hat, for it was a gusty day in early March, and the wind was making the treetops in the inn rock and quiver. I had come up from the Holborn end, and I had almost got to Theobald's Road when I noticed a man walking in front of me, leaning on a stick and to all appearance very feeble. There was something about his look that made me curious. I don't know why, and I began to walk briskly with the idea of overtaking him, when all of a sudden his hat blew off and came bounding along the pavement to my feet. Of course I rescued the hat and gave it a glance as I went towards its owner. It was a biography in itself, a Piccadilly maker's name in the inside, but I don't think a beggar would have picked it out of the gutter. Then I looked up and saw Dr. Black of Halsden waiting for me. A queer thing, wasn't it? But Salisbury, what a change! When I saw Dr. Black come down the steps of his house at Halsden, he was an upright man, walking firmly with well-built limbs, a man, I should say, in the prime of his life. And now, before me, there crouched this wretched creature, bent and feeble, with shrunken cheeks and hair that was whitening fast, and limbs that trembled and shook together in misery in his eyes. He thanked me for bringing him his hat, saying, "'I don't think I should ever have got it. I can't run much now. A gusty day, sir, isn't it?' And with this he was turning away, but by little and little I contrived to draw him into the current of conversation, and we walked together eastward. I think the man would have been glad to get rid of me, but I didn't intend to let him go, and he stopped at last in front of a miserable house in a miserable street. It was, I verily believe, one of the most wretched quarters I have ever seen. Houses that must have been sordid and hideous enough when new, that had gathered foulness with every year, and now seemed to lean and totter to their fall. "'I live up there,' said Black, pointing to the tiles. "'Not in the front. In the back. I'm very quiet there. I won't ask you to come in now, but perhaps some other day.' I caught him up at that and told him I should be only too glad to come and see him. He gave me an odd sort of glance, as if he were wondering what on earth I or anybody else could care about him, and I left him fumbling with his latch-key. I think you will say I did pretty well when I tell you that within a few weeks I had made myself an intimate friend of Black's. I shall never forget the first time I went to his room. I hope I shall never see such abject, squalid misery again. 
The foul paper, from which all pattern or trace of a pattern had long vanished, subdued and penetrated with the grime of the evil street, was hanging in mouldering pennons from the wall. Only at the end of the room was it possible to stand upright, and the sight of the wretched bed and odour of corruption that pervaded the place made me turn faint and sick. Here I found him munching a piece of bread. He seemed surprised to find that I had kept my promise, but he gave me his chair and sat on the bed while we talked. I used to go to see him often, and we had long conversations together, but he never mentioned Halsden or his wife. I fancy that he supposed me ignorant of the matter, or thought that if I had heard of it, I should never connect the respectable Dr. Black of Halsden with a poor garretteer in the backwoods of London. He was a strange man, and as we sat together smoking, I often wondered whether he were mad or sane, for I think the wildest dreams of Paracelsus and the Rosicrucians would appear plain and sober fact compared with the theories I have heard him earnestly advance in that grimy den of his. I once ventured to him something of that sort to him. I suggested that something he had said was in flat contradiction to all science and all experience. No, he answered, not all experience, for mine counts for something. I am no dealer in unproved theories. What I say I have proved for myself, and at a terrible cost. There is a region of knowledge which you will never know, which wise men, seeing from afar off, shun like the plague, as well they may. But into that region I have gone. If you knew, if you could even dream of what may be done, of what one or two men have done in this quiet world of ours, your very soul would shudder and faint within you. What you have heard from me has been but the merest husk and outer covering of true science, that science which means death, and that which is more awful than death to those who gain it. No, when men say there are strange things in the world, they little know the awe and the terror that dwell always within them and about them. There was a sort of fascination about the man that drew me to him, and I was quite sorry to have to leave for London a month or two. I missed his odd talk. A few days after I came back to town I thought I would look him up, but when I gave the two rings at the bell that used to summon him, there was no answer. I rang and rang again, and was just turning to go away, when the door opened and a dirty woman asked me what I wanted. From her look I fancied she took me for a plain-clothes officer after one of her lodgers, but when I inquired if Mr. Black were in, she gave me a stare of another kind. "'There's no Mr. Black lives here,' she said. "'He's gone. He's dead these six weeks. I always thought he was a bit queer in his head, or else had been, and got into some trouble or other. He used to go out every morning from ten till one. And one Monday morning we heard him come in and go into his room and shut the door, and a few minutes after, just as we was a-sitting down to our dinner, there was such a scream that I thought I should have gone right off. And then we heard a stamping, and down he came, raging and cursing most dreadful, swearing he had been robbed of something that was worth millions. And then he just dropped down in the passage, and we thought he was dead. We got him up to his room and put him on his bed, and I just sat there and waited while my husband, he went for the doctor. And there was his window wide open, and a little tin box he had lying on the floor open and empty. But of course nobody could have possible got in at the window, and as for him having anything that was worth anything, it's nonsense, for he was often weeks and weeks behind with his rent, and my husband, he threatened often and often to turn him into the street, for, as he said, we got a living to Mike like other people. And of course it's true, but somehow I didn't like to do it, though he was an odd kind of a man, and I fancy he'd been better off. And then the doctor came and looked at him and said as he couldn't do nothing, and that night he died as I was a-sitting by his bed. And I can tell you that, with one thing and another, we lost money by him, for the few bits of clothes he had were worth next to nothing when they came to be sold. I gave the woman half a sovereign for her trouble and went home thinking of Dr. Black and the epitaph she had made him, and wondering at his strange fancy that he had been robbed. I take it that he had very little to fear on that score, poor fellow, but I suppose that he was really mad and died in a sudden access of his mania. 
His landlady said that once or twice, when she had had occasion to go into his room, to dun the poor wretch for his rent, most likely, he would keep her at the door for about a minute, and that when she came in she would find him putting away his tin box in the corner by the window. I suppose he had become possessed with the idea of some great treasure, and fancied himself a wealthy man in the midst of all his misery. Explicit, my tale is ended, and you see that, though I knew Black, I knew nothing of his wife or of the history of her death. That's the Harlesden case, Salisbury, and I think it interests me all the more deeply, because there does not seem the shadow of a possibility that I, or anyone else, will ever know more about it. What do you think of it? Well, Dyson, I must say that I think you have contrived to surround the whole thing with a mystery of your own making. I go for the doctor's solution. Black murdered his wife, being himself in all probability an undeveloped lunatic. What? Do you believe, then, that this woman was something too awful, too terrible to be allowed to remain on the earth? You will remember that the doctor said it was the brain of a devil. Yes, yes, but he was speaking, of course, metaphorically. It's really quite a simple matter if you only look at it like that. Ah, well, you may be right. But yet I am sure you are not. Well, well, it's no good discussing it any more. A little more Benedictine. That's right. Try some of this tobacco. Didn't you say that you had been bothered by something? Something which happened that night we dined together? Yes, I have been worried, Dyson. Worried a great deal. I... But it's such a trivial matter. Indeed, such an absurdity that I feel ashamed to trouble you with it. Never mind. Let's have it, absurd or not. With many hesitations, and with much inward resentment of the folly of the thing, Salisbury told his tale, and repeated reluctantly the absurd intelligence and the absurder doggerel of the scrap of paper, expecting to hear Dyson burst out into a roar of laughter. "'Isn't it too bad that I should let myself be bothered by such stuff as that?' he asked, when he had stuttered out the jingle of once and twice and thrice. Dyson listened to it all gravely, even to the end, and meditated for a few minutes in silence. "'Yes,' he said at length, "'it was a curious chance, your taking shelter in that archway just as those two went by. But I don't know that I should call what was written on the paper nonsense. It is bizarre, certainly, but I expect it has a meaning for somebody. Just repeat it again, will you, and I will write it down. Perhaps we might find a cipher of some sort, though I hardly think we shall.' Again had the reluctant lips of Salisbury slowly to stammer out the rubbish that he abhorred, while Dyson jotted it down on a slip of paper. "'Look over it, will you?' he said when it was done. "'It may be important that I should have every word in its place. Is that all right?' "'Yes, that is an accurate copy, but I don't think you will get much out of it. Depend upon it, it is a mere nonsense, a wanton scribble. I must be going now, Dyson. No, no more. That stuff of yours is pretty strong. Good night.' "'I suppose you would like to hear from me if I did find out anything.' "'No, not I. I don't want to hear about the thing again. You may regard the discovery, if it is one, as your own.' "'Very well. Good night.' Four. A good many hours after Salisbury had returned to the company of the green rep chairs, Dyson still sat at his desk, itself a Japanese romance, smoking many pipes and meditating over his friend's story. The bizarre quality of the inscription which had annoyed Salisbury was to him an attraction, and now and again he took it up and scanned thoughtfully what he had written, especially the quaint jingle at the end. It was a token, a symbol, he decided, and not a cipher, and the woman who had flung it away was in all probability entirely ignorant of its meaning. She was but the agent of the Sam she had abused and discarded, and he too was again the agent of someone unknown, possibly of the individual styled Q, who had been forced to visit his French friends. But what to make of Traverse Handle S? Here was the root and source of the enigma, and not all the tobacco of Virginia seemed likely to suggest any clue here. It seemed almost hopeless, 
But Dyson regarded himself as the Wellington of mysteries, and went to bed feeling assured that sooner or later he would hit upon the right track. For the next few days, he was deeply engaged in his literary labors, labors which were a profound mystery even to the most intimate of his friends, who searched the railway bookstalls in vain for the result of so many hours spent at the Japanese bureau in company with strong tobacco and black tea. On this occasion, Dyson confined himself to his room for four days, and it was with genuine relief that he laid down his pen and went out into the streets in quest of relaxation and fresh air. The gas lamps were being lighted, and the fifth edition of the evening papers was being howled through the streets, and Dyson, feeling that he wanted quiet, turned away from the clamorous strand and began to trend away to the northwest. Soon he found himself in streets that echoed to his footsteps, and crossing a broad new thoroughfare and verging still to the west, Dyson discovered that he had penetrated to the depths of Soho. Here again was life. Rare vintages of France and Italy, at prices which seemed contemptibly small, allured the passerby. Here were cheeses, vast and rich. Here olive oil, and here a grove of Rabelaisian sausages. While in a neighboring shop, the whole press of Paris appeared to be on sale. In the middle of the roadway, a strange miscellany of nations sauntered to and fro, for there cab and hansom rarely ventured, and from window over window the inhabitants looked forth in pleased contemplation of the scene. Dyson made his way slowly along, mingling with the crowd on the cobblestones, listening to the queer babble of French and German and Italian and English, glancing now and again at the shop windows with their leveled batteries of bottles, and had almost gained the end of the street when his attention was arrested by a small shop at the corner, a vivid contrast to its neighbors. It was the typical shop of the poor quarter, a shop entirely English. Here were vended tobacco and sweets, cheap pipes of clay and cherry wood, Penny exercise books and pen holders jostled for precedence with comic songs and story papers with appalling cuts showed that romance claimed its place besides the actualities of the evening paper, the bills of which fluttered at the doorway. Dyson glanced up at the name above the door and stood by the kennel trembling, for a sharp pang, the pang of one who has made a discovery, had for a moment left him incapable of motion. The name over the shop was Travers. Dyson looked up again, this time at the corner of the wall above the lamppost, and read in white letters on a blue ground the words, Handel Street, W.C., and the legend was repeated in fainter letters just below. He gave a little sigh of satisfaction, and without more ado walked boldly into the shop and stared full into the face the fat man who was sitting behind the counter. The fellow rose to his feet and returned the stare a little curiously, and then began in stereotype phrase, "'What can I do for you, sir?' Dyson enjoyed the situation and a dawning perplexity on the man's face. He propped his stick carefully against the counter and leaning over it said slowly and impressively, Once around the grass, and twice around the lass, and thrice around the maple tree. Dyson had calculated on his words producing effect, and he was not disappointed. The vendor of miscellanies gasped, open-mouthed like a fish, and steadied himself against the counter. When he spoke, after a short interval, it was in a hoarse mutter, tremulous and unsteady. Would you mind saying that again, sir? I didn't quite catch it. My good man, I shall most certainly do nothing of the kind. You heard what I said perfectly well. You have got a clock in your shop, I see. An admirable timekeeper, I have no doubt. Well, I give you a minute by your own clock. The man looked about him in a perplexed indecision, and Dyson felt that it was time to be bold. Look here, Travers, the time is nearly up. You have heard of Q, I think. Remember, I hold your life in my hands. Now! Dyson was shocked at the result of his own audacity. The man shrank and shriveled in terror. The sweat poured down a face of ashy white, and he held up his hands before him. Mr. Davies, Mr. Davies, don't say that. Don't, for heaven's sake. I didn't know you at first. I didn't indeed. 
Good God, Mr. Davies, you, you wouldn't ruin me. I'll get in in a moment. You would better not lose any more time. The man slunk piteously out of his own shop and went into a back parlor. Dyson heard his trembling fingers fumbling with a bunch of keys and the creak of an opening box. He came back presently with a small package neatly tied up in brown paper in his hands and still, full of terror, handed it to Dyson. "'I'm glad to be rid of it,' he said. "'I'll take no more jobs of this sort.' Dyson took the parcel and his stick and walked out of the shop with a nod, turning round as he passed the door. Travers had sunk into his seat, his face still white with terror, with one hand over his eyes, and Dyson speculated a good deal as he walked rapidly away as to what queer chords those could be on which he had played so roughly. He hailed the first hansom he could see and drove home, and when he had lit his hanging lamp and laid his parcel on the table, he paused for a moment, wondering on what strange thing the lamplight would soon shine. He locked his door and cut the strings and unfolded the paper layer after layer, and came at last to a small wooden box, simply but solidly made. There was no lock, and Dyson had simply to raise the lid, and as he did so he drew a long breath and started back. The lamp seemed to glimmer feebly like a single candle, but the whole room blazed with light, and not with light alone, but with a thousand colors, with all the glories of some painted window, and upon the walls of his room and on the familiar furniture the glow flamed back and seemed to flow again to its source, the little wooden box. For there, upon a bed of soft wool, lay the most splendid jewel, a jewel such as Dyson had never dreamed of, and within it shone the blue of far skies, and the green of the sea by the shore, and the red of the ruby, and deep violet rays, and in the middle of it all it seemed to flame as if a fountain of fire rose up and fell and rose again with sparks like stars for drops. Dyson gave a long, deep sigh and dropped into his chair and put his hands over his eyes to think. The jewel was like an opal, but from a long experience of the shop windows he knew there was no such thing as an opal one-quarter or one-eighth of its size. He looked at the stone again with a feeling that was almost awe and placed it gently on the table under the lamp and watched the wonderful flame that shone and sparkled in its center and then turned to the box, curious to know whether it might contain other marvels. He lifted the bed of wool on which the opal had reclined and saw beneath no more jewels but a little old pocketbook, worn and shabby with use. Dyson opened it at the first leaf and dropped the book again, appalled. He had read the name of the owner, neatly written in blue ink. Stephen Black, M.D., Orrin Moore, Devon Road, Harlesden. It took several minutes before Dyson could bring himself to open the book a second time. He remembered the wretched exile in his garret, and his strange talk, and the memory, too, of the face he had seen at the window, and of what the specialist had said surged up in his mind, and as he held his finger on the cover, he shivered, dreading what might be written within. When at last he held it in his hand and turned the pages, he found that the first two leaves were blank, but the third was covered with clear, minute writing, and Dyson began to read with the light of the opal flaming in his eyes. 5. Ever since I was a young man, the record began, I devoted all my leisure and a good deal of time that ought to have been given to other studies to the investigation of curious and obscure branches of knowledge. What are commonly called the pleasures of life had never any attractions for me, and I lived alone in London, avoiding my fellow students and in my turn avoided by them as a man self-absorbed and unsympathetic. So long as I could gratify my desire of knowledge of a peculiar kind, knowledge of which the very existence is a profound secret to most men, I was intensely happy, and I have often spent whole nights sitting in the darkness of my room and thinking of the strange world on the brink of which I trod. My professional studies, however, and the necessity of obtaining a degree for some time forced my more obscure employment into the background, and soon after I had qualified I met Agnes, who became my wife. We took a new house in this remote suburb, 
and I began the regular routine of a sober practice, and for some months lived happily enough, sharing in the life about me, and only thinking at all intervals of that occult science which had once fascinated my whole being. I had learnt enough of the paths I had begun to tread to know that they were beyond all expression difficult and dangerous, that to persevere meant in all probability the wreck of a life, and that they led to regions so terrible that the mind of man shrinks appalled at the very thought. Moreover, the quiet and the peace I had enjoyed since my marriage had wiled me away to a great extent from places where I knew no peace could dwell. But suddenly, I think indeed it was the work of a single night as I lay awake on my bed gazing into the darkness, suddenly, I say, the old desire, the former longing, returned, and returned with a force that had been intensified ten times by its absence. And when the day dawned and I looked out of the window and saw with haggard eyes the sunrise in the east, I knew that my doom had been pronounced that as I had gone far, so now I must go farther with unfaltering steps. I turned toward the bed where my wife was sleeping peacefully, and lay down again, weeping bitter tears, for the sun had set on our happy life, and had risen with a dawn of terror to us both. I will not set down here in minute detail what followed. Outwardly I went about the day's labors as before, saying nothing to my wife, but she soon saw that I had changed. I spent my spare time in a room which I had fitted up as a laboratory. I spent my spare time in a room which I had fitted up as a laboratory, and often I crept upstairs in the grey dawn of the morning, when the light of many lamps still glowed over London. And each night I had stolen a step nearer to that great abyss which I was to bridge over, the gulf between the world of consciousness and the world of matter. My experiments were many and complicated in their nature, and it was some months before I realized whither they all pointed. And when this was borne in upon me in a moment's time, I felt my face whiten and my heart still within me. But the power to draw back, the power to stand before the doors that now opened wide before me and not to enter in, had long ago been absent. The way was closed, and I could only pass onward. My position was as utterly hopeless as that of the prisoner in an utter dungeon, whose only light is that of the dungeon above him. The doors were shut, and escape was impossible. Experiment after experiment gave the same result, and... I knew, and shrank even as the thought passed through my mind, that in the work I had to do there must be elements which no laboratory could finish, which no scales could ever measure. In that work, from which even I doubted to escape with life, life itself must enter. From some human being there must be drawn that essence which men call the soul, and in its place, for in the scheme of the world there is no vacant chamber, in its place would enter in what the lips can hardly utter, what the mind cannot conceive without a horror more awful than the horror of death itself. And when I knew this, I knew also on whom this fate would fall. I looked into my wife's eyes. Even at that hour, if I had gone out and taken a rope and hanged myself, I might have escaped, and she also, but in no other way. At last I told her all. She shuddered and wept and called on her dead mother for help and asked me if I had no mercy, and I could only sigh. I concealed nothing from her. I told her what she would become and what would enter in where her life had been. I told her of all the shame and of all the horror. You, who will read this when I am dead, if indeed I allow this record to survive, you who have opened the box and have seen what lies there, if you could understand what lies hidden in that opal. For one night my wife consented to what I asked of her, consented with the tears running down her beautiful face and hot shame flushing red over her neck and breast, consented to undergo this for me. I threw open the window, and we looked together at the sky and the dark earth for the last time. It was a fine starlight night, 
and there was a pleasant breeze blowing, and I kissed her on her lips, and her tears ran down upon my face. That night she came down to my laboratory, and there, with shutters bolted and barred down, with curtains drawn thick and close so that the very stars might be shut out from the sight of that room, while the crucible hissed and boiled over the lamp, I did what had to be done, and led out what was no longer a woman. But on the table the opal flamed and sparkled with such light as no eyes of man have ever gazed on, and the rays of the flame that was within it flashed and glittered and shone even to my heart. My wife had only asked one thing of me, that when there came at last what I had told her, I would kill her. I have kept that promise. There was nothing more. Dyson let the little pocket-book fall, and turned and looked again at the opal with its flaming inmost light, and then with unutterable, irresistible horror surging up in his heart, grasped the jewel and flung it on the ground and trampled it beneath his heel. His face was white with terror as he turned away, and for a moment stood sick and trembling, and then with a start he leapt across the room and steadied himself against the door. There was an angry hiss as of steam escaping under pressure, and as he gazed motionless, a volume of heavy yellow smoke was slowly issuing from the very center of the jewel and wreathing itself in snake-like coils above it. And then a thin white flame burst forth from the smoke and shot up into the air and vanished. And on the ground there lay a thing like a cinder, black and crumbling to the touch. All right. Well, thank you for uh, listening this week, as you always do. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed The Inmost Light by Arthur Mockin. No idea what I'm going to do next week. It might actually be The Night Ocean, for lack of... Because then I don't have to think of what I need to do. And it's just there, and it's already done. And I already have it, and I don't need to go looking for it. So, yay! I'll probably do that. Feel free to leave me in a rating and review on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter at WeirdTalesPod. You can email me, theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. That is it. I hope you have a great night and a great week, and I will see you next time. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Here's the bloops. It would probably help if I had the microphone actually turned toward me uh, instead of, like, to the side. That was weird. Also, why is it so quiet? Probably because I'm not very close to the microphone. Okay. Find me on Twitter, at WeirdTalesPod. Feel free to leave me a rating and a review on iTunes, and let's get on with the story. Good lord, that was a long intro. I'm so sorry. By the time this preparation had been exhibited, and Salisbury's disturbed feelings had been soothed by a pipe of Tabasco... Tabasco? No. You do not want to smoke a pipe of Tabasco. That will end badly for everyone and finds nothing but advertisement and triviality. Ah, I moved the lamp behind me, and now I can read both pages. He walked to the window. <clears throat> he walked to the window. Please still be recording. Thank you. <sighs> Salisbury sat down on the settle. Sat down? <sighs> and the absurder doggerel of the scrap of paper, expecting to hear Dyson burst out into a roar of laughter. After all that voice work, speaking with my normal voice sounds really weird. I hope you enjoyed The Inmost Light by author... Ar <laughs>